Chapter 34 The Cabin Table It is noon, and Doughboy, the steward, thrusting his pale loaf-of-bread face from the cabin scuttle, announces his dinner to his lord and master, who, sitting in the lee quarterboat, has just been taking an observation of the sun, and is now mutely reckoning the latitude on the smooth medallion-shaped tablet reserved for that daily purpose on the upper part of his ivory leg. From his complete inattention to the tidings, you'd think that Moody Ahab had not heard his menial, but presently... Catching hold of the mizzen shrouds, he swings himself to the deck, and in an even, unexhilarated voice, saying, Dinner, Mr. Starbuck, disappears into the cabin. When the last echo of his sultan's sweep has died away, and Starbuck, the first emir, has every reason to suppose that he's seated, then Starbuck rouses from his quietude, takes a few turns along the planks, and after a grave peep into the binnacle, says with some touch of pleasantness, dinner, Mr. Stubb, and descends the scuttle. The second emir lounges about the rigging a while and then slightly shaking the main brace to see whether it'd be all right with that important rope. He likewise takes up the old burden and with a rapid, dinner, Mr. Flask, follows after his predecessors. But the third emir, now seeing himself all alone on the quarterdeck, seems to feel relieved from some uh, curious restraint for tipping all sorts of knowing winks in all sorts of directions and kicking off his shoes. He strikes into a sharp but noiseless squall of a hornpipe right over the Grand Turk's head and then by a dexterous slight, pitching his cap up into the mizzen top for a shelf, he goes down rollicking, so far at least as he remains visible from the deck, reversing all other processions by bringing up the rear with music. But ere stepping into the cabin doorway below, he pauses, ships a new face altogether, and then independent, hilarious little flask enters King Ahab's presence in the character of Abjectus, the slave. It's not the least among the strange things bred by the intense artificialness of sea usages that while in the open air of the deck... Some officers will, upon provocation, bear themselves boldly and defyingly toward enough toward their commander. Yet ten to one, let those very officers the next moment go down to their customary dinner in that same commander's cabin, and straightway their inoffensive, uh, not to say deprecatory and humble air toward him as he sits at the head of the table. Oh, this is marvelous, sometimes most comical. Wherefore this difference? A problem? Oh. Perhaps not. To have been Belshazzar, king of Babylon, and to have been Belshazzar, not haughtily but courteously, therein certainly must have been some touch of mundane grandeur. But he who in the he who in the rightly regal and intelligent spirit presides over his own private dinner table of invited guests, that man's unchallenged power and dominion of individual influence for the time, that man's, that man's royalty of state transcends Belshazzar's. For Belshazzar was not the greatest. Who has once dined his friends, has tasted what it is to be Caesar? It is a witchery of, of social czarship which there is no withstanding. Now, if to this consideration you, you super-add the official supremacy of a shipmaster, then by inference you will derive the cause of that peculiarity of sea life just mentioned. Over his ivory inlaid table, Ahab presided like a mute maned sea lion on the white coral beach, 
surrounded by his warlike but still deferential cubs. In his own proper turn, each officer waited to be served. <laughs> they were as little children before Ahab, and yet in Ahab there seemed not to lurk the smallest social arrogance. With one mind, their intent eyes all fastened upon the old man's knife as he carved the chief dish before him. I don't, I don't suppose that for the world they would have profaned that moment with the slightest observation, even upon so neutral a topic as the weather. No. And when reaching out his knife and fork between which the slice of beef was locked, Ahab thereby motioned Starbuck's plate toward him. The mate received his meat as though receiving alms, and he cut it tenderly, and a little started if perchance the knife grazed against the plate, and chewed it noiselessly, and swallowed it, not without circumspection. For like the coronation banquet at Frankfurt, where the German emperor profoundly dines with the seven imperial electors, so these cabin meals were somehow solemn meals, eaten in awful silence. And yet at table old Ahab forbade not conversation. Only he himself was dumb. What a relief it was to, to choking stub when a, when a rat made a sudden racket and a hole blow. And poor little Flask, he was the youngest son and the little boy of this weary family party. His were the shin bones of the saline beef. He, he would have been the drumsticks. For Flask to have presumed to help himself, this must have seemed to him tantamount to larceny in the first degree. Had he helped himself at that table, doubtless, never more would he have been able to hold his head up in this honest world. Nevertheless, strange to say, Ahab never forbade him. And had Flask helped himself, the chances were Ahab had never so much as noticed it. Least of all, did Flask presume to help himself to butter? Well, whether he thought the emperor owners of the ship denied it to him, or on account of his, uh, its clotting his clear, sunny complexion, or whether he deemed that on so long a voyage in such marketless waters butter was at a premium and therefore was not for him a subaltern, however it was, Flask, alas, was a butterless man. Another thing, Flask was the last person down at dinner, and Flask is the first man up. Consider, for hereby Flask's dinner was badly jammed in point of time. Starbuck and Stubb both had the start of him, and yet they also had the privilege of lounging in the rear. If Stubb even, who was but a peg higher than Flask, happens to have but a small appetite and soon shows symptoms of concluding his repast, then, then Flask must bestir himself. He'll not get more than three mouthfuls that day, for it's against holy usage eh, for Stubb to precede Flask to the deck. Therefore it was that... Uh, Flask once admitted in private that ever since he had risen to the dignity of an officer, from that moment he had never known what it was to be otherwise than hungry, more or less. For what he ate, he didn't so much relieve his hunger as keep it immortal in him. Peace and satisfaction, thought Flask, have forever departed from my stomach. I'm an officer, but how I wish I could fist a bit of old-fashioned beef in the forecastle as I used to when I was before the mast. There's the fruits of promotion now. There's the vanity of glory. There's the insanity of life. Besides, if it were so that any mere sailor of the Pequod had a grudge against Flask in Flask's official capacity, all that sailor had to do in order to obtain ample vengeance was to go aft at dinnertime and, and get a peep at Flask and, through the cabin skylight, sitting silly and dumbfoundered before awful Ahab. Now, Ahab and his three mates formed what may be called the first table in the Pequod's cabin. After their departure, taking place in inverted order to their arrival, the canvas cloth was cleared, or rather was restored to some hurried order by the pallid steward, and then the three harpooners were bidden to the feast, they being its uh, residuary legatees. 
They made a sort of uh, temporary servants' hall of the high and mighty cabin. In strange contrast to the hardly tolerable constraint and nameless invisible domineerings of the captain's table was the entire carefree license and ease, the almost <laughs> frantic democracy of these inferior fellows, the harpooners. While their masters, the mates, seemed afraid of the sound of the hinges of their own jaws, the harpooners chewed their food with such a relish that there was a, a report to it. They dined like lords. They filled their bellies like Indian ships, all day loading with spices. Such portentous appetites had Queequeg and Tashtigo that to fill out the vacancies made by the previous repast, uh, often the pale doughboy was fain to bring on a great baron of, of salt junk, seemingly quarried out of the solid ox. And if he were not lively about it, if he didn't go with a nimble hop, skip, and a jump, then Tashtigo had an ungentlemanly way of accelerating him by darting a fork at his back, harpoon-wise. And once, Dagoo seized with a sudden humor assisted Doughboy's memory by snatching him up bodily and thrusting his head into a great empty wooden trencher, while Tashtigo, knife in hand, began laying out the circle preliminary to scalping him. He was naturally a very nervous, uh, shuddering sort of little fellow, this bread-faced steward, the progeny of a bankrupt baker and a, a hospital nurse. And what with the standing spectacle of the black, terrific Ahab and the periodical, tumultuous visitations of these three savages, Doughboy's whole life was just one continual lip quiver. Commonly, after seeing the harpooners furnished with all the things they demanded, he would escape from their clutches into his little pantry adjoining and fearfully peep out at them through the blinds of his door till all was over. I was a sight to see Queequeg seated over against Tashtigo, opposing his, his filed teeth to the Indians. Crosswise to them, Dagoo seated on the floor, for a bench would have brought his hearse-plumped uh, head to the low car lines. At every motion of his colossal limbs, making the low cabin framework to shake, as when an African elephant goes passenger in a ship. But for all this, the great Negro was wonderfully abstemious, not to say dainty, it seemed hardly possible that by such comparatively small mouthfuls he could keep up the vitality diffused through so broad, baronial, and superb a person. But, doubtless, this noble savage fed strong and drank deep of the abounding element of air, and through his diluted nostrils stuffed in the sublime life of the worlds. Not by beef or by bread are giants made or nourished. But Queequeg, he had a, a mortal, barbaric smack of the lips in eating, an ugly sound enough, so much so that the, the trembling doughboy almost looked to see whether any marks of teeth lurked in his own lean arms. And when he would hear Tashtigo singing out for him to produce himself that his bones might be picked, the simple-witted steward all but shattered the crockery hanging around him in the pantry by his sudden fits of the palsy. Nor did the whetstone which the harpooners carried in their pockets for their lances and other weapons, and with which whetstones at dinner they would ostentatiously sharpen their knives. That, that grating sound did not at all tend to tranquilize poor doughboy. How could he forget that in his island days Queequeg, for one, must certainly have been guilty of some murderous, convivial indiscretions? Alas, Doughboy, hard fares the white waiter who waits upon cannibals. Not a napkin should he carry on his arm, but a buckler. In good time, though, to his great delight, the three salt sea warriors would rise and depart. To his credulous, fable-mongering ears, all their martial bones jingling in them at every step like Moorish scimitars and scabbards. But though these barbarians dined in the cabin and nominally lived there, still being anything but sedentary in their habits, they were scarcely ever in it except at mealtimes, and just before sleeping time when they passed through it to their own peculiar quarters. 
In this one matter, Ahab seemed no exception to most American whale captains, who, as a set, rather inclined to the opinion that by rights, the ship's cabin belongs to them, and that it's by courtesy alone that anybody else is at any time permitted there. So that in real truth, the mates and harpooners of the Pequod might more properly be said to have lived uh, out of the cabin than in it. For when they did enter it, it was something as a street door enters a house, and as a permanent thing residing in the open air. Nor did they lose much hereby. In the cabin was no companionship. Socially, Ahab was inaccessible. Though nominally included in the census of Christendom, he was still an alien to it. He lived in the world as the last of the grizzly bears lived in settled Missouri. And as when spring and summer had departed, that wild Logan of the woods, burying himself in the hollow of a tree, lived out the winter there, sucking his own paws. So, in his inclement, howling old age, Ahab's soul shut up in the cave trunk of his body, there fed upon the sullen paws of its gloom. <laughs>